If you don't know, my name's Sean. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm proud of us. You know, I'm proud of us. We survived. Isn't that awesome? You and me, like we didn't go nuts, right? We survived a snow, at least an Oregon snowstorm, right? We all survived. Uh, just yesterday I was talking to someone, and they're like, oh, it wasn't that big deal, I grew up in Montana. I'm like, you don't count, okay? <laughs> For us Oregonians, it was a snowstorm, and we, I'm proud of you. We, we should be proud of ourselves. Um, hey, um, uh, you guys just saw him on the screen. Since you just saw him on the screen, I'm just going to take a moment to, to mention. Um, Joe Hoover uh, was the guy that was on the screen. He currently, right now, is in Guinea, West Africa. Um, and he's working with some people to create an audio version of the Gospels in the native language of Manica for the people of Guinea, West Africa. And so if you, if you think about it sometime, you know, just say a prayer for Joe. Um, it's an adventure to get to Guinea West. I don't know if you know this, there's not any nonstop flights to Guinea. Um, it's an adventure to get there. It's an adventure to be in country. It's an adventure to try and do something as big as they're trying to do. And then it's going to be an adventure for him to get back. So if you think of it, just pray for him. Um, they're doing some really cool, um, awesome things there. Um, also, if you're, if you're new here, if you haven't had a chance to get connected, here's, here's my 60-second uh, um, promo for you today on Rooted. Uh, here's what we say around here. Rooted is the answer, okay? Um, if you want to know about how to get connected, if you want to know about um, understanding who Jesus is, about growing in your faith, about finding the places that God's gifted you and how you can use that for the advancement of the kingdom, Rooted is the place for you. It starts February 18th. If you want more information, you can text, as Joe was saying earlier, Monmouth and I have 1,000 on the menu. It has a, has a little thing there for you um, about Rooted, we would love for you to get plugged in and connected to Rooted. Um, so uh, a couple years ago, just uh, three years ago, um, we, we had a, maybe two years ago, we had a milestone in our household. Uh, a, a milestone, a milestone I had waited for years. The, the, the moment that we had our first child, the moment that we knew we were going to have our first child, there was this moment in raising our kids that I was stoked for, right? Um, and if you know me, uh, I can have a lot of energy and a lot of excitement for. And I was waiting patiently, waiting, patiently, waiting, patiently waiting. And then just a couple years ago, we got the opportunity for the first time to take our kids to Disneyland. And I don't care what you think about Disneyland. I think it's awesome. And I was stoked. And, and I don't know how you plan trips, right? I don't know how you plan trips, if you're just kind of free-flowing or whatever. But when I start planning trips, there's Excel spreadsheets um, that I go deep dives into YouTube and to blogs, and I read everything to learn about every little nook and cranny so I don't miss anything, right? And uh, one of the things, if you do this, if you go to Disney, right, um, and you read some of these blogs, they're going to tell you, one of the things they're going to tell you to prepare yourself for going to Disney is if you are not physically active right now, that you need to start working out. Right? Here's why. Here's why. When you go to Disney, the average person walks 6 to 12 miles a day at Disney, and that doesn't include the 17 hours you spend standing in line. Right? And so they're basically like, you're going to be on your feet for a lot. You're going to be walking. And so if you can't get up off the couch right now and go walk 
a mile or two, just right as you are, you need to like prep yourself and condition yourself into this, into this thing because Disney, well, Disneyland, Disneyland is big. Disney World is, um, it's a whole different universe. Disney World, they measure the size of Disney World in square miles, okay? But Disneyland's, Disneyland's big. Did you know Disneyland is about 85 acres? 85 acres. It's big. It's, it's a huge place. And that doesn't include California Adventure. California Adventure is about another 80, 80 acres. Here's why I tell you all this, okay? Um, we're going through the book of Hebrews. And today, the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about the tabernacle, which eventually became the temple. And he's going to talk about the temple and the role of the temple and the tabernacle in their faith and in their walk and in their life. And, and, and um, one, one commentator said this, there is no way to overemphasize the significance of the temple in first century Judaism. Here's what, the temple, you know how big the temple mount was? Think Disney, 85 acres. The temple mount, it's almost 40 acres. Huge, huge. You go to Disney and you, you walk miles around Disney. You go to the Temple Mount, it is half the size of Disney, flat on top of a hill, huge, huge thing. In, in fact, um, it sits on top of this hill, and uh, um, when it was first built with all these shiny, beautiful stones, uh, Josephus and other historians tell us that at night, with just a few lanterns surrounding the temple, you could see the temple glowing in the dark Middle Eastern sky for miles as you approached it just pitch black at night, and you would see this glow of the temple out on top of a hill. During the day, they, they say that sometimes it would be so bright that it would be hard to look at the temple because of its reflection. It was this huge thing that you could see from all around Jerusalem. And as the commentator said, it is hard to overemphasize the significance of the temple in the life of first century Jews. It, it, was, it was everything. Um, the, the temple was the center of their politics. You remember like Jesus always getting into the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then there's this other group called the Herodians, and, and, um, and, and then you have the Roman Empire, and there's this all, all throughout the Gospels, as you read throughout the Gospels, there's this, there's this political tension between Jesus and the religious leaders and the Roman Empire, and they're, they're not wanting this rebellion to blow up because the temple was the center of politics for the nation of Israel. Before the exodus in the post, uh, in the, before the exodus, uh, exile, not the exodus, before the exile, right? Um, more important than the king's palace was the temple. Why? Because they believed that the king only sat on his throne because the God who occupied the temple placed him on that throne. And so even the king completely autonomous, free to do whatever he wanted. He sat in submission to the temple. It's hard to emphasize the, 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 the magnitude of the position that the temple played for Jews in the first century. It, it was the center of their, their social life. It was the center of their culture. What it meant to be a Jew was to be a person of that temple. No matter where you were scattered, there's this thing in the first century called the diaspora where Jews were scattered all over the Roman Empire. No matter where you were, you were identified as the people of the temple of Jerusalem. That's who you 
were. Their religion centered around it, right? There, there are certain acts in the Jewish faith that could only be practiced on those 40 acres. There, there were expectations if you were a good Jew at different points in your life that you'd make a pilgrimage to the temple, that you would, you would physically, you could, be, you could be days and days of traveling away and you'd be expected to make that journey because at the temple, there were things that could only happen. It is, it is impossible to over-exaggerate the significance of the temple amongst the Jewish people in the first century. I, 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 I spent, you know, I was going to preach this sermon last week, so I had a whole extra week to think about it. I have not been able to come up with anywhere close to a parallel of something, of a, of a, of a plot of land that so significantly impacts a people as the temple did for the Jewish people in, in like our world, a, a place where culture and ethnicity and history and politics and religion sits around this stone building that was so significant. It is, it is impossible to overemphasize the significance of the temple. And, and it, is, it is in this light that we step into Hebrews 8. So if you have your Bible and you want to follow along, Hebrews 8 is where we're going to be. Hebrews 8, verse 1. Hebrews 8, verse 1, it says this. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along right up here on the screen. We're going to be here on the screen, okay? It says this. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest. If you were here last week, right, or two weeks ago, Barbie spoke. Um, If you see Barbie, if you know Barbie, tell her thank you. Um, She was here in first service. Um, But tell her thank you. It's it's a big deal and really grateful for her. And, And she talked about that we have this high priest, because he's talking about all the, the, the limitations of the priesthood, of the Jewish priesthood, right? And he says, we have this, this great high priest. And then look at this, look at this, verse two, okay? A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord set up, not man. Now, now, um, I, can, I can feel the emotional disengagement in the room, okay? I can feel that this isn't shocking for you. This isn't like, what? The true tabernacle? The true temple set up by God and not by men? <gasps> but again, I have to tell you, you cannot overemphasize the significance of the temple in the Jewish life. And the writer of Hebrews, he's saying, look, 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 look. The temple, that your religion, that your social life, that your politics, that your whole ethnicity and purpose and existence revolves around, (laughs) it's just a copy. It's a copy because there's a true one and it's not that. And Jews would say, whoa, whoa, whoa. That is the true temple of God given to us by God. He told us how to build it. He told Moses how to build this temple and the writer of Hebrews. You see, and here's the thing. Um, It would be shocking for a first century Jew to read this with the significance and importance of the temple. Um, But it wouldn't just be Jews. Like anybody in the first century would understand the inflammatory statement that the writer of Hebrews is making right here. Do you remember um, there's the story of the woman at the well? Do you remember that story? Right? Jesus comes to her, says, uh, can I have some water? And she says, why are you asking me? You know, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. And, and he says, uh, 
you know, if, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for living water and it never run out. And, you know, go get your husband. Oh, I don't have a husband. You're right. Ha ha, got you, right? Or whatever, however it went. That's how I imagine my head. At one point, the woman of the well makes this statement to Jesus, right? John 4, 20, it says this. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And yet, you Jews, you see the loving affection right there? <laughs> yet, you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one must worship. Even non-Jews knew that the only temple, the only sanctuary, the only tabernacle of worship was the one that sat on the hill in Jerusalem. And just in case we're like, you know, maybe the writer of Hebrews like over-exaggerated or misunderstood or we're misunderstanding what the writer of Hebrews said. He doubles down. Hebrews 8 verse 5, it says this, right? They, speaking of the, the other priests, they serve in a sanctuary that is, that's a, a copy. You know the thing about copies? Um, they're not as good as the original, Right? Like a copy is a second-rate edition of the original. Recently, um, as many of you know, we, we went through the process of, of an adoption, right? And uh, in that whole process, you get some paperwork from the court, and one of them is the two pieces of paper that come from the judge, and it's got all this kind of stuff signed, and they're stapled together. And they give us two copies because they say, these are the only two copies that you get, Okay? Uh, copies, not as in copies of, these are the only two editions. I shouldn't use that word, it'll get confusing. These are the only two editions you get. And it says, like 20 times we've been told, do not remove the staple, which seems like an odd detail, right? And here's what they say. If, if you remove the staple, it will only be considered a copy of the original and will have no legal weight or value to it. Isn't that crazy? And then they said this. If you remove the staple on both of the additions that you have, you will then have to petition the court to reopen the file, which could take months or years on your own dime to get another original copy of it. Because the copy, the shadow, it's, it's, not, the same, it's not the same thing. It doesn't carry the same weight. It doesn't carry the same Value, as long as we carry the original, we have authority and we have power. But as soon as it becomes a, a copy, it's just a secondary image of something else. And he goes on and he says, this is why Moses was warned. Right? God, God said, don't mess this up. That to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Why? Because the temple wasn't the destination. The tabernacle wasn't the goal. In fact, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that the tabernacle, that the temple, it's just an image of something more important, something more significant. There's this really interesting study you can do um, where you can actually study the book of Genesis and Genesis 1 and 2 and the story of creation. And, and actually even that story is, is a mirror of the temple, the, the, the way the temple's built, God orders his creation in this way that looks like the temple. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, look, there's a greater spiritual reality. There's something, the temple's good. Did you know that? The temple's good. Did you know, like, 
God gave them the temple. He told them how to build the temple. He gives them instruction on what this temple is supposed to look like. But there's something better, the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us. There's something better than this good gift that God's, that God's given us. This is not a new concept, actually. Um, There's some writing in this thing called the Midrash, which is a collection of Jewish writings. And um, uh, one rabbi, he he said this in in the Midrash, the temple only exists or existed because harmony, or, or the Hebrew word here is shalom. You might be familiar. It means peace, but harmony is a great translation. I like that translation. The temple only exists because harmony did not. Here's what the... The, writers, the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us. This is what this rabbi recognizes. That the end goal, the mission, was not the temple. In fact, God's design, if you look at the creation account, God's design was that the whole creation would be his temple. That he would dwell amongst his people in his tabernacle that was his creation. And yet death and darkness and sin broke in. And now the temple, it's not his goal. It's not his mission. The temple is not the mission of God. It is rather a method that God is using to begin the reclamation, to begin the restoration of his creation. He's putting this little spot in creation. This is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us. He's doing a good thing. He's putting an outpost to the kingdom of God. And he's saying, in this place, amongst all the world, in this place, my spirit will dwell uniquely. But the writer of Joel tells us, he says, it's not so that it stays in the temple. It's because one day, one day, my presence will consume all the earth and all the earth will be my temple and all the earth will be my tabernacle. What the writer of Hebrews is trying to point to is that sometimes good things, even God things, even God-given things, distract us from the best things that God's inviting us to. Sometimes we have this temptation to make the method the mission. The temple exists for a purpose. It had a purpose. But God's purpose was not to maintain The temple. God was using the temple to accomplish his purpose. Now, here's what I know. Um, That's not real uncomfortable for any of us. That's not real shocking for any of us. That's not really something that we're unwilling to give up and say, oh, no, the temple, right? Like first century Jews might have. But it made me wonder, like what are things, where are things in our life, maybe even good things, Maybe even like God-honoring things. Maybe even like God-given things that we've confused with the mission. What are some things in our life that we've been tempted, like good God-honoring methods and have great purpose, and we've made our purpose? We've made our mission. So I'm just going to give you a heads up. Here's what we're going to do, okay? Uh, Next couple minutes, I'm going to give you some examples. And they're going to start safe. Okay? They're going to start safe. They're going to start at a distance. We're all going to go, ha, ha, yeah, see that? That doesn't make sense. But it's going to slowly get a little bit more uncomfortable. And here's going to be my challenge to you. My, 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 as humbly as I can say to you, is, is I just encourage you to, to wrestle with some of these ideas and wrestle with other places that we have confused the mission of God with the methods he's given us. Are there places where we've taken good things and we've made them God things? 
So here's my first example. You ready? Stained glass. Stained glass. You know why stained glass um, became so popular and so accepted in the churches? Um, because, because for most of human history, um, humanity has been illiterate. For most of human history, most people couldn't read. So, so if we came, if we were missionaries in the, into the 15th century and we're like, hey, guess what? We translated the scriptures in this Germanic language. I'm going to go, cool? I can't read it. It doesn't matter, right? And so some really brilliant people, some really God-honoring people used this medium of art, the stained glass, and they began to adorn churches with it, all around churches. There'd be on enclaves and in churches, and they would, they would paint the story of creation all the way around to the story of the cross, all the way around to the story of revelation and restoration and reconciliation of all things. And they would use these images to tell the stories to elicit, to, 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 to turn up emotions in people, they would look at these beautiful pieces of art or these angst. And before stained glass, it was, you know, the, it was a Sistine Chapel, right? And they would use art to paint these pictures to be able to tell the stories, to get people to feel the stories, to remember the stories. They, they wouldn't be able to tell you the verse references for the feet and the 5,000, but they would know the story because they'd seen the picture. And that was good and that was great. And that was such a gift to the church for so long. But there came a point in time, maybe you lived through this era, there came a point in time where we had taken a good thing, we'd taken a method, and we'd made it the mission. And there came a point in time where people started to say, oh, they'd build new churches. Oh, how can that even be a church? It doesn't have stained glass. It doesn't look like a church. It looks like a warehouse. People can't have church in that place. Look at how average and plain and bored the place has to inspire awe if we're going to worship. And we'd begin to take a good God thing and we'd made it a mission thing. We'd made it our purpose. Here's another one, okay? It's going to take a little closer. Um, uh, David Crowder. David Crowder. Um, when I, when, I did, uh, when I first started full-time ministry, I did college ministry. And at the time when I was doing college ministry, this maybe will start to tell, me, tell you my age. When I started doing college ministry, David Crowder was the jam, right? And here's the thing, okay? When you're in college, like 16 to 24 years old, like our society is built around like those are the coolest moments. You, you are the epitome of cool in that era of your life. Our whole society revolves around that age of your life. And so uh, David Crowder was like the jam and he was like the coolest worship guy. He'd take like this rock sound and he'd take old hymns and he'd, he'd blend these old hymns into this new sound and we'd be like, woo, this is awesome. We'd sing songs. We didn't even know what the words meant right? Here I raise my Ebenezer. I don't know what an Ebenezer is, but I got it, right? And I'm giving it to Jesus. And I would tell college students, I'd say this, I'd say, here's the deal. Um, there's going to come a point in time when you're not cool anymore. Anybody give me an amen, amen. right? <laughs> there's going to come a point in time where nobody cares about your opinion. There's going to come a point in time where the music you love, we're going to look at you and be like, what? Serious? And here's what's probably going to happen. I'll tell college students this. 
there's going to come a point in time where you're going to get old enough that you're not actually going to like the music they sing in church anymore. And the question to you is going to be, will you choose your preferences? Will you choose your opinions? Will you choose what's comfortable to you? What makes you feel warm and fuzzy? Or will you choose the mission? Will you choose your own preferences? Because we do this, right? We're shaped and formed by a generation or error. Maybe for you, maybe for you, maybe it's Bill Gaither, right? If, if, you, if you're eligible for AARP, you know who Bill Gaither is. Um, maybe it's Bill Gaither. Maybe it's that generation. Maybe it's um, hymns. Maybe it's, maybe it's David Crowder. Maybe it's Chris Tomlin. Maybe it's something now, but there'll come a point in time where the songs of the church will not be the songs that you love and adore and shaped and transformed your walk with Jesus. And the question to you is going to be, are you going to choose to prop up a method as if it is the mission of the church to sustain your preferences? Or will you choose the mission of Christ? How easily, how easily, how subtly we take a good God-honoring thing and we make it our mission and our purpose. And we miss out. This is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell them. The temple was good. It was great. It was beautiful. It was awe-inspiring. It would create awe in you when you walked up to it and you participated and you sang and that's all good. But God's trying to do something where his presence isn't on that hill, but the whole world is his temple. The whole world is full of his worship. Let me give you another one. Um, how about personal freedom? How about you're like your own, I'm an American. I get to do what I want. You know that's good, right? Actually, in fact, um, Paul, um, Paul didn't say anything about being an American, just to be clear. Um, <laughs> that would have been amazing. Uh, anyways, um, Paul says this, Galatians 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Like, that's good. It's a good thing. And he says this. In fact, he says, stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. That is good to celebrate freedom, to celebrate and say, you are an image bearer of God, and I give you the dignity of having personal freedom. That is, that is good. But sometimes... Sometimes the good thing, when it becomes our purpose, becomes an idol. Listen to what Paul says. Just a little bit later, he's, he talks about some other things, but then look at verse 13. Look what he says in verse 13. He says this. You, my brothers and sisters, that's you and me, right? That's us. You were called to be free. Yeah, freedom. But he says this, but do not use your freedom to indulge your flesh but rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And if our demand for freedom negates our ability to sacrificially self-submitting love our neighbor, we've made a good thing. 
We've taken a good God-honoring thing and we've made it into the mission and we're missing the good, great, life-giving uh, opportunity God's inviting us to. Let me give you one more. Being moral. Some of us, so you get real nervous right now because you're like, what? Because some of us, think that what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to be moral. To be moral. Let me, um, let me say it this way. Did you know that according to the gospel, according to scripture, that moral people still go to hell? The goal of following Jesus is not that you would be a more moral person. A fruit of it is, did you, you, you hear, right? Scripture says, the fruit of the Spirit is these things. The fruit, the byproduct of these things. A good thing, being like not killing people, not hating people, not being jerks to people, not stealing from people, not cheating on your spouse, not stealing from your company. Like those are all good things. But the purpose of the church is not to make you a moral person. In fact, um, you know, the, the number one religion in America is evidence of us missing the boat on this so often. Now, you might think, and like the number one religion in America, um, when people mark on the census or when they like do a survey, is Christianity. Right? The number one religion is Christianity. Um, part of it is, part of the reason, and you, you may be like, why is our culture like this when so many people say they're Christians and the culture looks like this, blah, you know, whatever, right? Um, th there's this thing in, in sociology called the halo effect, which is just this. Um, we all write the answer we're supposed, we think we're supposed to write, right? Like you, if, if someone asked you and they're like, you know, they're, they're doing a survey and they're like, how many times do you work out? And you're like, ah, oh, whew, so many. Um, maybe like uh, three or four times a day. Is that on your survey? Is there an option there? More than four times a day? Is that on a, right? There's this thing called the halo effect. We, we just say like, oh, what we think we should say. Um, sociologists, um, tons of them are in agreement. This lady wrote this uh, monumental uh, work in early 2000s. And, and the number one religion, the number one practiced religion in America is this. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. Because we've convinced ourselves, we've sold a bill of goods to ourselves, to another generation, to one another, to our culture, that what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to be a moral person, to be kind and nice, to not cuss at people, to not be a jerk, to be faithful to your spouse, to, to, to love your kids, to have a good job, to be a good citizen. Therapeutic, moralistic therapeutic, it just means that like um, in your times of crisis, like God will show up and he'll be there. He'll be like a cosmic counselor for you. Oh, you're gonna get through this. It's gonna be better, right? And then moralistic therapeutic deism just means that you don't actually have a meaningful relationship with God, that he's just out there somewhere. Because a good thing so easily and so often has gotten confused with the mission that God's called us to. A thing that has a purpose like being moral, like the things that God tells you to do and don't do have a purpose. They're good. But when they become our purpose, we miss out. Just like 
those Jewish Christians scattered all over the Roman Empire who thought, oh, I can't worship God anywhere unless I'm at the temple. And the right of few was trying to say, no, no, listen, the temple's good. It's a gift, but God wants something more for you. So I wonder, are there times where we, we've taken good things and we've made them our mission? And you might be asking, like, well, what's the mission then? Like, if it's not, you know, if it's not David Crowder, which I think we can all agree on, okay, even though he has an amazing facial hair, David Crowder, right? It's not David Crowder. It's not personal freedom. It's not being moral people. Like, what is the mission? Well, um, like, your Bible has a heading. It says this in the end of Matthew. It says, um, the great co mission. The great commission. The great, here's the cool thing. Um, Jesus gives us a job. He says, here's your purpose. While you're here, here's your purpose. You get to do this. I love this. Co-mission. You get to do this with me. Isn't that awesome? Like Jesus is inviting you every single day to be something, to do something that he's about, that he's doing. And then he also says, here's what I want you to do together. Co-mission together. The reason that we exist as a church, the reason we are here as followers of Jesus is for this. He says this in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, uh, to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. The reason you're here, the reason I'm here, the mission of the church is because the temple wasn't the purpose, it was just the beginning. It was just the beginning of God's presence breaking into all of creation so that all the cosmos might be his temple, worshiping and celebrating his goodness. And yet so easily and so often, good things get in the way. Um, I mentioned Joe's in Guinea, West Africa, right? Joe and Carol Hoover um, are, are, are part of our church. They spent they spent decades serving in Guinea, West Africa because they were committed that they would give up their comfort. They'd give up um, any, any uh, pleasures that they had in living in Western America and, and they would go and they would live amongst a people that didn't know Jesus to make disciples. They gave up all of their preferences and all of their opinions and all of their comforts so that the mission might be accomplished in Guinea, West Africa. For the last couple months, there have been about half a dozen adults that gave up every single Sunday night to show up here to hang out with junior high and high schoolers. And if you don't know this, to hang out with junior highers is a unique calling. If you've had kids, you agree. If you're a junior higher, you will in about 20 years. Okay? Why? They give up their Sunday nights. They gave up Sunday night football to love on these students so that they would know that Jesus loves them and that that might transform their life. And you know what's happening tonight? <laughs> um, uh, something like eight kids are going to show up tonight to stand up on this stage to, pro to proclaim their faith in Jesus and get baptized. Here's the question I constantly ask myself. 
Because I know, I don't know if you know this, this is how um, life works. I'm getting older every year. Do you know that? Like you are too. And I know there's this temptation in me. I know there's a temptation in me to make this life about me and, and about my comforts and about that I've earned it and I've put in my time and I've done all this kind of stuff. And, and I ask this question of myself and I challenge you with this question. If for the rest of your life you went to a church that you didn't like, don't say amen yet, and you listen to worship music, that you couldn't stand. And you listen to a sermon that bored you out of your mind. You can say amen now. Okay? And you lived in a place that you didn't like, serving a people that annoyed you, and you knew that your parents, that your siblings, that your children, that their children, that their friends would meet Jesus and their lives would be transformed by the good news of Jesus? Would you do it? That's the question the writer of Hebrews is challenging us with. Will you give up your preferences and your comfort so that the whole world might become a, te a temple to worship our God?